Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I want to welcome you back to the program again this week and thank you for joining us in uh, this, which will be the third segment as we talk about the Ephraim Gate and the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, we've, I, I, I've lost count of how many programs we've uh, already recorded on the Roadmap to Reformation. That's the series we're doing uh, at this time, looking through the books of Ezra, the books of Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah. Of course, we see contemporaries with them where prophets prophesied, like Ezekiel and Daniel, also in the same time periods. And what we have shown you over the last probably almost 40 weeks of sharing things and uh, that this is a roadmap to Reformation. Let me just say quickly uh, before I move on that if you have missed any of these and you just caught this one for the first time, you thought, man, I'd like to go back and really take a look at this series. Uh, You can go back and watch them on YouTube. And you can also get the audio portions on iTunes, on our podcast, and on an RSS feed for your Android device. But the YouTube channel uh, has all of the programs we've aired to date, and you can simply go to my website at lenhouse.com In the upper right-hand corner there, there are icons that will take you directly there. You can subscribe to the channel if you'd like, and it's free of charge, and it will notify you every time we upload a new video uh, to that uh, to that uh, channel. And you can go back and study these. You can pause them. You can use them uh, in classes. There'll probably be a day when we pull them down and use them in a college course or something because we have several networks of churches that are asking us to be able to use this as a roadmap to Reformation. I really believe the Lord is saying something to me through this and to the body of Christ because it's about restoration and not demise, and it always happens in the midst of chaos. What we showed you is that Ezra and Nehemiah, although they rebuilt the temple and the city, those two things in the new covenant are not natural physical buildings. The temple of God is His people. What knew you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Nehemiah's name means the comforter. Ezra's name means my helper. Both of them are words that describe the work of the Holy Spirit as the comforter and as the helper. And they are there, as Nehemiah said, to arise and build. God wants to build us up, first of all, on our most holy faith, and then He wants to build uh, our families and our relationships and the local church and our government. God is in the process of bringing about reformation. See, we either think God is about to abandon and uh, His creation and evacuate His saints, or we think He's about to raise up His sons in order to, uh, in order to recover His 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 creation and to bring about new creation. That's God's ongoing project, as He came to seek and to save that which is lost, and he's the master builder, and he is uh, in the patterns of this Ezra, Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Haggai. These prophets prophesied to the immediate rebuilding of the temple and the natural rebuilding of the city, but they step out of that as if it were a greater fulfillment when Jesus, the greater son of David, comes on the scene, because especially Zechariah, 
He starts out by saying, there's a man whose name is called the branch who's going to come on the scene. He starts saying, the cornerstone is going to be laid with shouts of grace, grace. Well, that's John chapter 1, where Moses gave you the law, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, and of His fullness have all we received in grace for grace. That's the only other place that I know of that grace, grace is used twice. Somebody needs to stop shouting doom, doom, and start shouting some grace, grace, some favor, favor. Jesus came to preach the year of the favor of our God. What you preach will manifest. And so I think it's time to preach some good news. And so we see then he goes on to say, and we're going to deal with this one probably a little bit more because in the last two we've read the text out of Zechariah chapter 9, Behold, your king comes to you, riding upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And he tells them, uh, Return to me, you prisoners of hope, because of the blood of that covenant, I'm going to bring you forth as out of a pit with no water in it. And then he says, I've bent the bow of Ephraim. In other words, I have given you, tell them, I've given you double for your trouble. And so we're coming to the Ephraim gate, and that's why we connected the Ephraim gate with the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday was because it was speaking of, behold, your king comes to you. And when he came, he came to make atonement for our sin. And, you know, even as I've uh, I've brought the water gate uh, and the Ephraim gate together, because we see it connected, we'll read it here in a minute in Nehemiah 8, is that the water gate also speaks of the water, the washing of the water of regeneration and the cleansing of us, the washing of the water of regeneration. That's something applied to believers because they simply receive the atoning work of Jesus Christ and move from what they describe in the book of Nehemiah as a time of weeping, a time of mourning, and a time of woe, because they've moved beyond the great day of atonement into the Feast of Tabernacles, the time of harvest, where we start to reap what he sowed. Because in Zechariah, it says, when your king comes to you riding upon a colt, the full of an ass, you'll receive double for your trouble. And Ephraim was mentioned in that text. The gate of Ephraim speaks of the fact that we've already received double for our iniquities in the person and work of Jesus Christ in all of His finished work and His atoning work of Calvary. It was blood and water that flowed from His side. And that water fell on not just anything, but it fell on a woman standing beneath the cross. And I think that the book of Ephesians says that husbands love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might wash her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself, not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. That water that flowed from his side was what cleansed you. It's what purged you. It's what presented you to himself, not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. It was his work that cleansed you. It was his blood that washed you. You've been washed in the blood, and you've been made white by the blood of Jesus. In Genesis, God opened the side of the first Adam and brought out of a rib a woman to him. But on Calvary's cross, the spear of a Roman soldier opened the side of the last Adam, and blood and water spilled out on a woman. And it was a picture of him purging us so that he could present us to himself, not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. Let's get the word here. I think that's enough review. 
Nehemiah, the eighth chapter and verse number seven, Nehemiah, which was the Tershatha, which is the governor. I spoke in times past or other two programs before this that the Shatha means the governor. Nehemiah's name means the comforter. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit becoming the governor in our lives. <clears throat> and Ezra, the helper, the priest, the scribe, the Levites, taught the people, said unto the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God, mourn not nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So he reads the words of the law first as they are beginning to enter back into uh, this Reformation. Now, I showed you last week how Romans 3 says the purpose of the law was to conclude all under sin so he could have mercy on all. You can't just read Romans 1 and let it stand by itself. You need to read Romans 1, Romans 2, and Romans 3, because it is really t setting the stage for what happens after that that happens by faith, etc., and in Romans 1, 2, 1 and 2, he's dealing with outsiders and their sin. In chapter 2, he tells you, what advantage does the Jew have? In other words, all the world, he said, those are these uh, outsiders are guilty without the law, and these insiders are guilty with the law. But if you stay there, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and you read just those two chapters, <coughs> excuse me, and you don't realize that the whole purpose of the law was to conclude, he comes into chapter 3, so here's the end of this. Both insider and outsider are all in the same sinking boat, that the law has concluded us all under sin, so that God have mercy on all, that there is none righteous, no, not even one, that every man and all the world would become guilty before God, so that at some point you would say, I need a Savior. That's what the Day of Atonement was about. But the celebration that follows that is a revelation of how we've applied the blood of that lamb and been washed by the washing of the water by the word at the water gate. We've been cleansed through the flow of water. And I don't want to go back and review again what I did last week. So just go back and look at that. But it cleanses us. We're moving on to the Feast of Tabernacles. He said, Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. That's one of the things I think we're doing with television, is we're letting people hear the gospel that they've never heard before, because we always keep them in the mourning and the woe and the weeping and the wailing. But I'm telling you, I believe it's time to wipe some tears off of faces. You say, well, that just sounds ridiculous. Don't you know what's going on in the world? Well, if you look at the situations that's going on in Nehemiah Ezra's day, it sure didn't look good either. But it was somebody rose up somewhere to begin to bring a reformation. I believe we're in a reformation right now. So the Levites stilled all the people, hold your peace for the day is holy, neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions to, to make mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priest, and unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law uh, which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches, and pine branches, and myrtle branches, and palm branches, and branches of thick trees to make booths, as it were, as it written in the, uh, as it's written, as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them, and made themselves booths, 
everyone upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. That's how we're connecting this to the, the gate of Ephraim and to the water gate. Is This is where the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated. And all the congregation of them that were come up again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Joshua the son of Nun until that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was a great, very, very great gladness. Also day by day from the first day unto the last day he read in the book of the law of God and they kept the feast seven days and on the eighth day was a solemn feast according unto the manner. Now I want to just uh, just, I want to read a few things concerning the Feast of Tabernacles. I got a lot of notes on the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know how much I'm going to be able to cover. So what I'm going to do is just give you some references. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 34, also Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 13 is where the Feast of Tabernacles is described that Ezra is reading from. But it was on the 15th day of the seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days. They would celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, or they would literally build huts, or as it were, like temporary shelters made from the branches of goodly trees. The word Sukkot, which is t- uh, the Hebrew word uh, translated, the, the word Sukkot is usually translated tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So it's the Hebrew word Sukkot. There's a quick transition from the high holiday with their somber mood of repentance and judgment. We just talked about that. They they quickly move from transition from the high holiday of the somber mood and repentance and judgment to a holiday of rejoicing and celebration, which the people are commanded to build a hut and make it their home. That uh, The Torah identifies the booth with the temporary dwelling in which the Israelites lived in the wilderness after they left Egypt in the way to the promised land. This, um, the same time marks the beginning of the construction of God's sanctuary in the desert in Exodus. So they built these booths to show that God kept them in mobile dwelling places as they transitioned through the wilderness journey. I'll have more to say about that in a moment. But I think sometimes we need to understand that God wants us to continue to be mobile enough to move from glory to glory. I think sometimes we get set in our place and we, I go to churches and think, my Lord, you haven't grown in 40 years. It's time maybe to move out of your sealed houses where you put the ceiling to the house and only allowed so much. Matter of fact, I think it's a time, you know, most, most of the church world in Christendom has celebrated the Feast of Passover, which speaks of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection at the Passover. And they celebrated the Feast of Pentecost because we've got, you know, fundamental churches and we've got Pentecostal churches. But there's a whole nother feast that God is releasing or trying to bring us into a revelation of so that we can enjoy and celebrate. And it's not just for when you get to heaven. We're going to show you that in just a little bit. The Feast of Tabernacles is a feast of celebration. And I'm going to tell you something. If you realized how much Jesus has done for you, it would, it would jerk a praise up out of you. It would cause you to shout and dance in the streets. And instead of mourning and, and weeping and wailing, what would happen is there would begin to be a celebration of praise that would begin to come and a joyful sound. And that's what he began to tell them was to come out of their somber mood of repentance and judgment. We have stayed on that nerve 
for so long that I believe people are tired of hearing about judgment. We've stood around altars and begged God to forgive us for something He already forgave us of when the real repentance might be to repent from the fact that we need to keep repenting all the time. I think probably the most biggest repentance we need to do is what Hebrews 6 says, repent from dead works and stop trying to earn God's favor. And I believe that kind of a repentance is what Acts chapter 2 was talking about when he said, if you repent, there'll come times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. So yes, there is a repentance, but now it's to change your mind and to shift from the somber mood to a time of celebration. I believe we're turning a quarter even concerning this pandemic. And we are coming out even in the midst of a time of chaos. But it was a time when they shifted the mood and they began to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, uh, they identified with uh, the booth was a temporary dwelling in which the Israelites lived in the wilderness after they left Egypt on the way to the Promised Land. At the same time marks the beginning of the construction of God's sanctuary in the desert. They began to build God's house in the desert. It is not an accident that they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in Ezra and Nehemiah at the beginning of God restoring His tabernacle among men. Because the Feast of Tabernacles is the fulfillment of, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Revelation chapter 21 is the fullness of the Feast of Tabernacles. I like how the Message Bible says that. It says in, in King James, it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. But in uh, the Message Bible, it says, Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood. He has made His home in men. And I always tell them, tap your neighbor and tell him property values just went up because when God moves in the neighborhood, he makes all things become new. Interestingly enough, the word tabernacle there, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word sukkot, tabernacles. God wants to tabernacle, not just in a building in the Middle East, God wants to tabernacle himself in a people. The fullness of the Feast of Tabernacles is God filling his people with the Holy Ghost, which is the governor that moves us beyond the Feast of Passover to the Feast of Pentecost. But we celebrate a third feast, which is the Feast of Maturity or the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Joy, a time of celebrating what we've come to understand in the Feast of, 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 on the Great Day of Atonement that preceded this feast for 10 days. And they celebrated. It was a party, ladies and gentlemen. It was a celebration of ingathering. Uh, why was it built? This is one of the things I had in my notes. Why was it built? The Torah says, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. He said that to them in the wilderness. It was to establish the relationship between God and Israel. The Sukkot or the booths or the tabernacles reminds us of the clouds of glory that surrounded Israel during the wandering through the desert and on the way to the promised land. It spoke of divine protection. God had stood uh, over Israel during this difficult years. I think it's time to celebrate the fact that God has put upon all the glory a defense. He tabernacled in the midst of it. The chalupa, the, 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 the cloud of glory that was over them was showing how God could take care of us, even in the wilderness, and how He made us to dwell in booths and supplied for us divinely as it related to the 
the bread that fell in the wilderness and how it related to the water that flowed from a smitten rock that followed them all the way through the, uh, the wilderness. It followed the Day of Atonement where Israel passed through the season of repentance and redemption stood in, in stark contrast to, some to, to, uh, to, to the somber tone of atonement, which I already talked about that. Sukkot is also called the season of our joy. The reason it was called the season of our joy was that after the season of repentance and the redemption of Yom Kippur came the joy of knowing your sins were forgiven and the joy of walking with God knowing that your sins are forgiven. I think that's something that God's people still need to get is because we continue to put their sins on them. But we can rejoice, little children, knowing that your sins have been forgiven, that the new covenant declares that I have removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. I heard somebody sing a song one time that said, how far is the east from the west? And they did like a meme or like a skit where it was the cross. And he said, as far as the east is from the west, when Jesus spread his arms out and they nailed him, to that's how much he loves you. And that's how far he removed your sin was from the east to the west. Historically, the Feast of Tabernacles commemorates the days in the wilderness of Sinai after coming out of Egypt when by all natural laws Israel should perish, but where instead divinely protected prophetically, the Feast of Tabernacle is the festival it teaches on the Messianic kingdom and the joy of the kingdom. The spiritual application, the both symbolizes man's need to depend on God for his provision of food and water and shelter. The observances of the Feast of Tabernacles in Nehemiah chapter 8 is a reminder of when the children of Israel dwelt in booths during their time of the wilderness. It follows the divine order of what follows after judgment. Of course, we know in the new covenant, Christ was judged on our behalf so that this feast should be a command to rejoice. Of course, we know that the Word was made flesh and tabernacle dwelt among us, which is the same, again, Greek equivalent of the word Sukkot, tabernacles, is that it dwelt among men. The booth was a remembrance of the time in the wilderness when God protected, led, and sustained the children of Israel in the wilderness. The wilderness experience was a picture of the 40-year transition. I want you to see this because I want to connect these dots. The wilderness experience was a picture of the 40-year transition period from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. because there was a supernatural environment for the people in the wilderness. The covering was the cloud, see Exodus 13, 17 to 22. They were baptized into the cloud, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul the apostle reminds them that they were baptized in the cloud in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 and 2. Hebrews 6 also talks about covering or a shelter and a protection by day. It was a pillar fire by night. It was work-related protection upon all the glory shall be a defense. The cloud was seen as a chupa, a wedding canopy is what the word chupa means. The cloud of glory in the new covenant is the people of God. See Hebrews chapter 12, that we are encompassed with a great cloud of witnesses. And he also appears in the clouds in Revelation chapter 1. It's not just clouds out here. It's appearing in a people and manifesting himself as a present reality, even in the midst of his people. The Greek word skinos which means tabernacle or booth or shelter or covering. This word appears in Revelation chapter 21 when it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. 
It is also the same Greek word, this Greek word skenos, that's used in John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, We beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So the Feast of Tabernacles is the celebration of God coming to take up His abode within you and I. But I want to make this uh, interestingly enough, the Sukkah was built to teach and understand also the millennial reign of Messiah or the, Messi- or the Messianic-, Messianic age. Now, let me just stop here uh, before I get into what this Greek word is again and try to give you just a little bit of reference here again because the, it, it was, I, I want to go back here again because it was a reminder. The wilderness, it was a reminder of the wilderness experience was a 40-year transition period from Egypt to the promised land. Jesus comes on the scene, and when He comes on the scene, He fulfills Zechariah chapter 9, where He says, Behold, your king comes to you riding upon a colt the full of an ass. And right before Jesus is crucified, He gives a prophecy. He begins to fulfill in reality, these feasts that were types and shadows. He becomes the lamb that was slain on Calvary's cross. Acts chapter 2, he fulfills the Feast of Pentecost. But the Feast of Booths was not celebrated until they came into the land of promise and to commemorate how God made them dwell in booths all the way through the wilderness. So there's a 40-year transition period from 30 A.D., to 70 AD. And it is not an accident that this 40-year transition period typifies exactly that 40 years that the New Testament was written. Because as the New Testament was written in the 40-year transition period, it spoke of moving out from underneath of the wall and into the fulfillment of the new covenant. And it spoke of, of uh, uh, when the tabernacle uh, uh, was destroyed, or when the temple, the physical temple was destroyed in 70 AD, God brought back a new temple. An old temple was removed, and the new tabernacle of God, the new booth, the new Sukkot, the tabernacle of God that was with men is now no longer a place, it is a people, and God Himself will dwell with them and be their God and wipe all tears off of all faces. That's the shift from the Day of Atonement to the Feast of Tabernacles is the removing of the weeping and the tears and the celebration of God habitation in the midst of His people. And that is so powerful to me because when we realize that that's what that thing, that that whole 40 year period, he told him in Corinthians that all of these things that happened to them under Moses happened to them as examples for us, not us, but the first century church at Corinth upon whom the ends of the ages had now come. The ends of the ages was the back end of the old covenant age, the front end of the new covenant age, and where, where these two ages collided was a 40 year gap of a wilderness journey, and the whole New Testament is full of an Exodus paradigm, and they are coming out of exile and into their promised land, and we should be celebrating because the tabernacle of God is with men. Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood. He's made His home in men, and He's come to wipe all tears off of all faces. Well, we're out of time, and we're going to get into this again next week. Join us again at the same time. We do need your help, though, if you'd like to sow into this ministry to stay on the air. Uh, if you'd like to, go to our website. The easiest way to do that, to give via credit card or PayPal, is it's right there on our website, a place to give. You can also call the number that will come up on the screen. 
If no one takes your call, leave a message. We will call you back. Or you can send a check or money order to the address that will come up on the screen. We do appreciate and thank you for your partnership during these difficult times. You've helped us to take the gospel and send portions to them for whom nothing has been prepared. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.